Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi. With me today is Liz Nolasco. Hooray. Hello. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> Pretending we haven't already done like a half hour of chit chat. Um, maybe not that long. Uh, so Liz and I are going to talk today about um, uh, uh, the sort of hierarchies and levels and, and things gatekeeping we do regarding the types of early childhood settings and child care settings out there. Um, I think that's what we're talking about. Does that sound like a good summary? <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. How we consider what's best for children as a society yeah. and as professionals and parents yeah. and just all of the different angles. Yeah. So um, so we're going to use the qu- a quote from um, Elliot Haspel's book. Um, by the time this comes out, he will have been on a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the book is called Crawling Behind America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. And this comes from chapter two, where he talks about the chapter title is the many faces and brains of care of child care. Um, but here's what we're going to use for our starting point. Um, if you want, uh, sorry, if you want, if you want to impact what happens in, oh, no, never mind. I was reading entirely the wrong thing. Let me try this again. <laughs> two sentences start with the same thing, but this is the one we want. Excuse me. Uh, If you want to impact early childhood, you have to be everywhere at once with tentacles reaching into places as far flung as publicly funded school-based pre-Ks and the sacred privacy of the home. The only viable option is to flip the question on its head, worry less about the form of care and more about the people providing the care and the families choosing what care is best for their child. So maybe we could have just done that second part because um, I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing publicly funded school-based pre-K um, because uh, uh, people who listen often know that that sort of sets my teeth on edge um, and scares me to think about. But it is true that we can't say there's only one kind of care and that's, or there's only one kind of early education that's that's really the best thing for children um, so if we're trying to solve this problem, that's the only option we can look at. Right. And I think that, well, I'm not exactly encouraged by the way VPK and other public preschool initiatives have come out. Mm-hmm. I think, I think there's still hope there. I think there's still optimism that we can push up some of the things that we know are important and early ed up into the school system. But also, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I would love to have that op- optimism. I try to be. Um, I try to have the optimism, but my problem is that the people running those spaces already through no fault of their own, don't have any early childhood or child development knowledge or under their understanding is elementary school. And so anything in their building is going to have to look like what they think elementary school should be. Right. You know what I mean? So that's mostly where my concern comes from is that, and the Dale Farron study that essentially said, Right. 
this isn't really the best way to do things. But I do think maybe what, you know, what Haspel's saying here, I think, is that there has to be elements of any kind of solution. Any kind of solution has to have elements of all types of 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 care out there that's out there and for some families that's going to be some kind of universal pre-k kind of solution right and on one hand i think that the phrase parental choice is very politically loaded right now and often not in ways that i agree with yes um and at the same time you know we are talking about your family and your children and your values is really what it comes down to Mm -hmm. and if that means that your family needs support because you believe that there should be a family member staying home with your child. How can we support that family? How can we support the person staying home with that child to understand child development? You Mm -hmm. know, how can we support everybody who is caring for and educating children in what children need? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, later, and this is one of the other quotes we talked about using, but later on the same page, he says, um, the fact is that children can learn anywhere that there is a responsive, loving adult and something to pique their interest. Um, uh, you know, I would, of course, go a little further and say maybe we want a little bit of child development expertise in there, right. too. Um, but but thinking about it in those ways, like if we just have things that pique children's interest and allow them to follow that interest and there's a, a healthy uh, sort of connected relationship uh, with the adults right. in the space, the setting doesn't matter as much. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's huge. I think way off mic, there's been kind of an ongoing conversation about what children need in their environments and what an ideal uh-huh. environment should look like and who set all these expectations for indoor space and outdoor space and all the different measurements. And, yeah. you know, I keep oscillating between well yes of course this is optimal for children and okay well we can't always have the optimal how can we yeah (laughs) you know children are in lots of environments and how do we just adapt as needed and adapt the environment rather than forcing the children in that environment to comply in some way that is unnatural and harmful to them yeah you know it's like so in so many other contexts um what's really important isn't as easy to measure as some of these other, these other things. And so that's why one of the reasons it's so easy for early childhood folks to get hooked into those early academics or those discrete academic skills as their focus, because it's easier to measure than relationship and mental well-being and joy. (laughs) Um, uh, But the same, you know, uh, I think the episode, by the time this conversation comes out, this will be further in the past, but Mike Huber on his teaching with the body and mind podcast, they just did an episode um, about equipment versus environments, I think is the name of it. But, but what Mike basically said in the opening is, you know, you look at a quality checklist and it's all about how many things you have on shelves and what's on display in the room and what your setting looks like. Um, And that's where we get this push that only childcare centers can be, you know, approved places for care or only Head Start is really early, you know, quality education for young children. And we get into that gatekeeping um, instead of thinking about relationships and being developmentally responsive to what's happening with children. Um, And I'm guilty of it. You know, I've definitely had different parts of my career, different parts of my own uh, uh, 
professional trajectory, I guess, where I thought centers were better than homes. And um, sometimes there's part of me where I think a family childcare home really is so much better than a childcare center. Um, And, um, you know, I've been, I've had times where I'm like, no, we can't just leave them home with parents because some parents are really bad parents (laughs) or, you know, they're mean or they're abusive or whatever. So they can't just be home there. Um, But that's, I mean, that's sort of just the, the other side of this coin is that nothing is perfect all the time yeah we have to have lots of options right and how can we work on the adults in all of those settings how can we you know rather than turning up our nose that oh well that's daycare but when he's four he'll go to preschool yeah and you know or the kids who are home with their parents and the parents are freaking out because they're like oh he's about to start kindergarten and he's never been outside like Mm-hmm. He has no school. I've been drilling his letters since he was two and he can almost write them. You know? <laughs> yeah. How can we help share developmentally appropriate practices and child development and just the heart of what children need with all of these different mm-hmm. people? And also, you know, on the, the the other side of the coin, right? The parents who don't place that heavy importance on literacy, but also really just see the child as a burden, only see, uh-huh. you know, they don't see their influence, right? They just see this burden, this obligation, this, this is what we do. And now there's a person that I'm responsible for and I keep them fed and dry and clean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there are a lot of quiet. people who, who, who are working in formal care and education settings who have a very similar attitude about the children. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> All of it, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, how do we get the adults around how do, how do we bring them around or support them if they're already kind of there? Um, how do we change the conversation from uh, that sort of return on investment? You know, we have to pack all this academics in now so they don't go to prison in 12 years. Um, right. That, that whole narrative, how do we, how do we change that to Essentially, Carol Gorbodin-Murray, I can never say her name right the first time, uh, running the world. Like, how do we, how do we make right, this yes. <laughs> Right. I mean, continuing her mission that care is not a bad word. And, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it is, in fact, crucial even up through the elementary school years. Yeah. I mean, I've so I, I've gotten to be, in the last uh, several months, pretty involved in local community, like committees and efforts and, and uh, panel discussions about the child care problems specific to Tippecanoe County here in Indiana. And I'm sure the conversations are very similar because the problem is similar. Um, employers concerned that they don't have um, employees and and thinking that a lack of good child care is part of that problem. So we need to open up uh, a giant warehouse where all these children can go and then our employment problems will be solved or the other side of it people saying well we just need whatever solution works for the parents and then someone at the table will inevitably lean forward and say but it has to be high quality with no further discussion of what high quality means like I think we just put up right. all these um all these barriers to solving the problem uh you know, I, and I, I do mm-hmm. go ahead. No, go ahead. I mean, there's, there's kind of a historical precedent for the warehouse model, honestly, I yeah. mean, in, in a good way, right? The, um, the shipyards up in Northern California here, yeah. when uh, during World War Two, they yeah. set up these incredible childcare facilities, they would help the families, they would provide meals, you know, it right. was, 
caring for the whole family in service of caring for the children in service of, yeah, keeping the adults at work who wanted yeah. and needed to be at work. Yeah. Um, and you know, there were no quality checklists yet at that point, but by all measures. Right. But it know, still became very learning political. and active and involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, the reason that didn't continue, part of it was, you know, the men came home from war and so right. women had to go back to their rightful place of being um, just in, in the home um, or in the home. I don't want to say just uh, and not needing that care as much. But also if you read about that, um, not that, but then what, what, what was suggested when Nixon was president, then that really built right. on what had happened in world war II, um, with the shipyard, uh, programs, um, the, the narrative became, oh, oh, the government's coming in to take over your family and you're not going to have any choices anymore. And, um, your values are going to be trampled on. We can't have we can't have a, a unified system of childcare because mom should be at home anyway. You know, all these these narratives right. that we feel like we've really moved past. But if you really look at some of the current conversations and policies and political conversations about it, it's still very much and on the, the same. micro level too. <laughs> on the micro level too. I mean, it's really yeah. infiltrated everybody's brains. There are so many, you know, if you look at any new parent message boards, there are all these moms who are just engulfed in guilt for going back Mm -hmm. to work when you know and they'll say like I love my job I love what I do and I love my kid and also like I'm happier when I work and then go home and see my kid you know um but also there's this messaging that child care is bad and god forbid you call it daycare or yeah or a babysitter or whatever else yeah and that's um you know that's just suboptimal for whatever reasons are built up yeah I I still really struggle with the daycare thing like ultimately I feel like I don't care like call it what you want to call it as long as we're being intentional and thoughtful and and developmentally informed and responsive or whatever mm-hmm. but I still have that inward button that button that gets pushed when I hear the word and I'm like oh don't say that but it doesn't it doesn't matter that's not a helpful part of the conversation right <laughs> um I, I think what's interesting uh, so I'm in California and to care for children, period, requires um, in any kind of, in a center, uh-huh. I don't actually know the home-based regulations, but in a center uh-huh. to be considered a teacher of young children, you need four college classes in early childhood education, like four specific classes. Oh, okay. And, um, but that doesn't matter if you're in a daycare or after school. Sorry, if you're just listening, there are lots of air quotes going yeah. on. Or just imagine flying everywhere. Um, <laughs> or, you know, it doesn't matter the setting, but if it's called a, whether it's called a daycare, whether it's called a preschool, if there's a person who can be alone with your children, they have this same baseline level of education. Oh, okay. And there are still people who are like, well, I'm going to move them from daycare to preschool because preschool has the word preschool in it. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, or, or worse, the doing preschool. Oh, we have two hours a day of preschool every day in our daycare. I yeah. love it. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sure. where preschool is just code for prepared, generally adult-led activities rather than mm-hmm. <laughs> letting the children follow their interests right. independently. Right. Uh, you know what? Just the whole school readiness things ruins everything. Because <laughs> um, that's, I think we can connect a lot of this to, or uh, I think a lot of, of this narrative that 
you know, a center or some sort of institutional setting is better mm-hmm. than a home, home-like setting or a home. Um, part of it, I think, comes from the idea that we have to be doing something to get them ready for school. But I think part of it also comes from that feeling that as a woman, if I'm going to choose to work and let someone else care for my child, I have to, and and this is subconscious. I don't think anyone's, you know, maybe specifically thinking this way, explicitly thinking this way, but if I'm going to make this decision, I have to justify it in some way. Uh, and, and that right. sort of learning and, and academic competition and, and race uh, is an easy justification. Right. And I do think that actually contributes to some of the tension between families and their yeah. providers as well, because yeah. when there's that parental resentment of, I have to work outside the home, sure. it's easy to find all the little mistakes that someone else, or, you know, not even mistakes, all the differences between the sure. way this person cares for your child and the way you care for your child. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And system where nobody's really happy with anybody else. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to be really clear. That's not a criticism of working of moms who work outside the home. I mean, I, no, I no. definitely, I always have my children have been in childcare. We're in childcare, you know, from the time they were a couple months old, it made me a better mom because I was a better, more fulfilled person. Um, uh, but that's me. That's not right. You know, some people, I know that there are some uh, parents out there who really would rather be at home, but can't uh, for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're right. I think that does lead to a lot of um tension I mean it's just what you said that tension is there then right and certainly not always right this but there are certainly situations right right we just have to keep (laughs) let's just assume that there is a um this isn't true for everybody (laughs) running through this whole conversation um yeah but but that's the thing right if we're talking about what's best for families what's best for children what's best for children is what fulfills their parents uh-huh. right that's what yes. all of the research on children being in care from a young age says if the parents are happier working then it's much better for the children to be in care if the parents mm-hmm. are actually miserable and want to be home with their children and like you said, you know, just yeah. doing it because they can't make ends meet otherwise, then yeah. they're generally less happy and children generally don't have as good of an experience and don't receive the same benefits. And it mm-hmm. just comes down to supporting the parents, supporting the adults who we don't think about when we think about the children, right? We separate yeah. them. Yeah, for sure. But keeping that, you know, just we all need care, right? All the way up through. If the parents are taken care of, if the parents are fulfilled, if the parents had the opportunity to get their needs met, then lo and behold, they find it a lot easier to care for and meet the needs of their children. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so I think, am I imagining this? You wanted to talk too about then how that, how this affects like teacher prep and early childhood qualifications and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So I kind of, touched on it for a second. I was like, yeah. Oh, I should go back to that with that yeah. the 12 yeah. unit thing. Um, but I, I think it's, it's kind of appealing to me, your 12, 12 cl- credit hour, depending yes. on what's being taught in those. But anyway, right. Yeah. It, that's the thing. It's very school dependent, but also it's, yeah, yeah it's functionally a CDA. The 12 units right. are basically the same thing. Um, yeah. but 
if you're looking at the qualifications of the people who are caring for children, if you're looking at how to get the best care for children, I do think there is a significant element of understanding theory, understanding developmentally mm-hmm. appropriate practice, understanding and the apprenticeship model, right? Exchange has been yeah. sending out a lot of articles recently and you and Tiffany have been talking forever about yeah, the yeah. apprenticeship model and how valuable it is. And I think that's kind of how I got into the field, right? I got into the field when I was just starting classes. So I was taking my classes and working full time at the same time. And I got so much more out of it than I think mm-hmm. I would have if it had just been, you know, purely the classes and then in the classroom. Right. Or, you know, I think the other difficulty is, and, you know, I, I worked for 20 years before I got any kind of degree. I worked in early childhood. I worked in childcare centers, um, did family childcare in my home for a year uh, before I went back to school and got a formal, I had a CDA, but before I went back and got my degrees and stuff. Um, And I feel like I resisted it for a long time because I'm already doing the work. I'm doing it really well. Families love me. Children are happy, you know, whatever. But um, uh, that's because I'll just go ahead and say that's because I was always curious and I was learning and I, you know, I wasn't just saying, Mm -hmm. oh, anyone can do this work. I still was seeking out information about how children grow, learn, develop, um, what they, what they need developmentally at different stages. Um, and then when I went to college in my, at 40, it kind of fit in there. And so many of the students that I see are already doing the work are in that same situation, but, um, not all of them are curious, not all, some of them still are like, I don't understand why I have to do these classes. I already do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of unlearning that then has to happen. So I feel like people who who teach teachers have a level of responsibility to kind of be able to guide the unlearning and add to the <laughs> right add add to the add the new skills and the new information and um, help teachers think critically about what they're already doing that fits what we're learning about and what. Um, what maybe they could could change or think differently about. It's hard work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being able yeah. to pinpoint, oh yes, this is wonderful. This is exactly what we were talking about yeah. last week. Yeah. And also, hey, this thing is another thing we were talking about last week. And it's still there's something that's didn't yeah. get across somehow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um I mean I mean it's just a messy system all around. But I think it starts with adults working with children in whatever setting, even if you're a parent, understanding that just because, especially just because we're women, doesn't mean we're born knowing how to do everything or understanding what what is really happening in front of us. We can have a good instinct for it. We can, you know, but um, but but the adults need to sort of recognize there's more that I could know that would help me right. support this and- child. I think the other piece of that is there are some things that I was raised with that I think served me that didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, that uh-huh. I think there's so much of, well, yeah, I was punished when I did something right. wrong and yes. therefore and I learned fine. how I'm a good person. Therefore yeah. <laughs> I learned how to, you know, so listening to what the child is communicating through behavior rather than just punishing the behavior and stopping there. Uh-huh. Well, they stopped, you know, that's what I needed. That's right. Yeah. Even if that's not what they needed, but it's what they got. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Although most of the time they don't really stop. Like when I'm, when I'm talking to, to teachers who rely on punishment kinds of mentalities Mm -hmm. and practices, 
it's the same kid over and over again. So what's yeah. happening is not really working, but then we just shift the blame onto the child or the family instead of thinking, oh, it's our, it's our response. That's not effective here. It's like, of oh no, course. there's something persistently wrong about this child and, and this right. family. And that's why my methods aren't, aren't getting the change I want. That's a whole other right. podcast. That's true. Um, yeah. I guess we can't but go yeah, there but quite it's, yet. It's hard to, because, you know, this is what I end up hearing a lot is people who are resistant to kind of new ways of thinking, because if they accept that there's something they could do differently, that means I was doing it wrong. And you're telling me I've been harming children all this time. And so that's hard for them to get through. And that's not, you know, not necessarily sometimes yeah you were harming children but but uh now you have a choice i mean sometimes it's just uh right uh maybe it wasn't the most effective way or the the most developmentally sound way to respond but there wasn't necessarily malice behind it or you you're not a bad person because you you didn't know differently. You know what I mean? I'm it's trying funny, to say it without saying that quote, you know? Yeah, no, it's funny. Cause I was thinking about this the other day. Cause I was going back through, I just got a website, got all fancy, reposted some old blog posts, oh, wrote new blogs. Nice. And I was going through it and I was like, huh, this is just like a chronicle of all the times I fucked up and what I learned from it. And also <laughs> do I want this out here? But also like, yes, maybe it's a good thing for yeah. people to see like, Hey, this is actually, you know, later I'm thinking about this and you know, Often yeah. I had the chance to repair it with the child or at least over yeah. time, our relationship grew past it. Right. Yeah. But just trying to figure out and be open and public about like, we're all constantly learning right. and by and large, you know, the mistakes that we've made, especially if we can correct them, especially if we can correct them with that child who's, who has been generally mildly harmed or at least not helped by our mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. The relationship piece, that love for the child, that, understanding and time with them can overcome a whole lot of little things like yeah. that I, know I was just writing about when I was like on a kid for taking too many paper towels and then I took a step back of like wait a minute am I really going to lose my mind over too many paper towels <laughs> <laughs> is this yeah is this worth damaging the relationship with the child right now yeah uh, yeah um oh I just had a spark of something and now it's gone but nope, I mean, it's, it's really it's, gone. I can keep talking because yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean, we, there's a big dialogue about the phrase children are resilient, meaning, oh, oh we can just keep harming them and they'll be fine versus right. like what I feel is maybe the actual meaning children in relationship with supportive and warm adults mm -hmm. can get through a lot of stuff, even when those very same supportive and warm adults mess up sometimes. Right, right. <laughs> it's not a system that lives inside them. That no matter right. what happens to me, I'll be fine because I'm resilient. Um, and it's used in that way. So adults don't have to feel bad right. about some of the decisions that are being made. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, like so much of everything it's, it's within relationship and within a system that's paying attention and prioritizing health and well-being, physical, emotional, right. mental. Um, right. And if we have the teachers who are educated holistically right. on children's well-being and supporting their learning and supporting their acquisition and, yeah. um, oh no, I lost the word. <gasps> the way they file the information. Classification? The, nope. What is it? Mm, I don't know what you're trying to say, but uh-huh. 
I'll text you later. I'm sure it'll come back to me. Uh, <laughs> it involves yeah. schemas. It's how they, it's an A word. Mm-hmm. Anyway, accommodation, accommodation. Uh-huh. Yes. Got <laughs> how it. They assimilate and accommodate the new information that's coming yeah. in. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And just understanding that the children are an active participant, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of lip service paid to it, but I still hear children are sponges rather than Nope. Mm-hmm. Children are systems grabbing what they see and working with that information and right. changing their brains physically with yes. the information that they receive and what they how they can manipulate it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird um, uh, sort of balance because I get that that sponge thing sometimes means you know, they're just curious and they're active and they're exploring and they want to learn. But too often it means, well, they're an empty thing that I can fill with what I choose. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I do think the sponge is kind of worthwhile to keep in mind just in terms of the behaviors that we are engaging in that we don't necessarily want to pass along right? oh sure because yeah. we're not, when we're not I, I feel like the sponge metaphor is actually more apt when we're not purposefully teaching things I feel like that's much oh. better when we're like accidentally you know we're using language or like yeah um, my other thing I've been reading a lot about recently is just our societal and individual relationships with food and body image right mm-hmm. and so those things that were you know when it kid sees us looking in the mirror too long and making faces and you know standing sideways and sucking our gut whatever <laughs> that's kind of where the sponge model comes in right in my right. mind a little bit more than right when I'm you know teaching in the classroom mm-hmm. for sure um no that makes a lot of sense and there's so much that happens I mean even if we think about language acquisition it is sort of a spongish kind of model right. um that starts with their brain architecture, of course, and their physical development as that impacts the, the brain, but, um, but even then they need the opportunity to express it. And, you know, it's, there's a high amount of feedback that's required for that. It's not just the passive. It's why you can't sit a six month old in front of a TV in a different language and suddenly, and they become fluent in that language. They don't have that exchange. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So again, not a perfect model. (laughs) not an absolute it is or it isn't um but it's an interesting way to think about it about things um so you know I'm just going back to to teaching adults you know I think about when I did go to college so much of it until I got into my master's program then we had one class that was specifically about play um uh it was still pretty adult mediated play, but it was at least a whole class about play. Um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't learn much about play and care. And, um, when the conversation was about relationships, it was about how you can use a relationship to manage behavior essentially. Um, uh, and I think now, you know, every class I teach has, 12 or 13 objectives that someone else has decided that I I can teach it however I want, but I have to get all those objectives in. And it's really challenging to, you know, essentially you have to sneak in some stuff that's developmentally appropriate that needs to be in there. And you have to sneak in stuff about just the care pieces. You know, it's, it's not all I'm not teaching. I'm not giving you a degree for the nine to 11 
time that we've decided is our learning time. When you come through these classes, I want you to think about everything we talk about and the whole child and the whole day and the family, you know, it's, it's difficult within some of the systemic structures that we've got set up to even teach um, our, our current and future early educators and childcare providers and whatever you want to call them Mm -hmm. because of the system, the system and it's capital S. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so unfortunate because there, there are just so many, I mean, if we're looking at um, the the impact, right, mm-hmm. of education as a whole, like why do we have public education? Why do we have early childhood programs? Why does it exist? Ideally, it's, you know, especially as you're looking at the later grades, but I think it starts from the beginning. It's for a functioning, informed, caring citizenry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to build a society of people who can take care of each other and support each other. Mm. But when we're looking Sounds at Sounds pretty socialist, metrics... Liz. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Yes, we should be thinking about it in that way. But then it it just becomes this, um, you know, I had, I love my graduate program. I don't want to speak poorly of my graduate program. Yeah. However, <laughs> I was not yeah. allowed to acknowledge zero to three-year-olds as part of my um, my capstone project. Oh, wow. But, like, the, like nobody was. And Uh the the explanation was, well, of course, I mean, of of course, social and emotional development are crucial in zero to three. So why do we even need to talk about it? Oh, my word. Because nobody's doing it in zero to three. (laughs) There aren't enough people who are paying attention to it in zero to three. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the other piece where what, how we educate doesn't really fit what we know about young children. Um, Like uh, in my program, um, the only specific infant toddler classes are electives. Nobody has to take a class that's specifically about infant toddler. And so I have to make sure that every class I teach includes birth, uh, infants and toddlers, I guess. And I get sort of criticized because I, um, I then end up sort of neglecting the six to eight year old part of early childhood. That's hard. Yeah. But what I know about the students coming through the program is that not many of them are going to work with that age or are already working, but a lot of them think they're going to go get a preschool job, but that's not where the openings are in the center you're interviewing for. And so you're going to get stuck in an infant toddler room. Um, And so you better, I want everybody to know, but the reality is that that is such an important part of development. So much happens that's important to the child from birth to three that we again end up ignoring because we're so focused on this one model of what early education looks like right and it's sold to us and pushed into all new parents and buying Mm -hmm. the black and white books and watching Mm -hmm. the sensory videos on the youtube yeah the sensory (laughs) you know our our vision of what should be what it looks like versus what it is because somebody can make money off of what they think parents think it looks like yep yep (sighs) so what are we going to do about it (laughs) Mm, confiscate all the toys (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i was just on it this is maybe related but i was just on somebody's facebook page where i think it was probably the occupational therapist because that's um what i'm reading a lot now um but someone in the comments said how do you know when uh the the child is too old for the toy 
or or something like that. How do you know when when to get rid of toy certain toys, something like that? And um, I have an answer like, in mind, but I'm very curious how other people answer that. Yeah, well, you know, I what Kelsey said was if the child still uses it, then yeah (laughs) it's not too young for them but a therapist had been telling this this woman who was asking some some therapist she was working with her child had been saying you need to get rid of these because they're not challenging enough and they're holding them back developmentally you know that kind of idea yeah but I think there's an element of that too as we're talking about um gatekeeping about what real early childhood education should look like and what's quality it goes back to that um what kind of toys are on the shelf if we move away right. from, to- you're right. If we, if we move away from toys, we, we respond, I think differently with the child. The child certainly responds differently. And I think too, I, I keep going back and forth because I do find a really ugly elitist view of certain types of toys, right? The wooden toys, the Waldorf yes. toys, the Montessori toys that yeah. Maria nor Steiner would have ever laid eyes on. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. But you know, th- there's this idea of you know, all toys are bad versus the way we adults make children interact with a lot of toys is bad and yeah, there are lots of bad toys out there that yeah. exist. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't think we can be quite episode, the same but... broad brush. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but just that idea that you can walk into a classroom and look around and decide whether it's quality or not based on right what's out there I just had someone who was in um she works for a head start somewhere um and they were doing their pre-service and this teacher really wanted to put more natural loose parts kind of things in the classroom and they said no it has to be from the catalog it can only be stuff from the you know whatever catalog they were using and they they were emailing me asking how do I fight this like give me some information to use to fight this and I was like oh boy um Google's nice. <laughs> Google can help <laughs> you with that. <laughs> right. No, I tried to answer a little bit, but um, you know, we just we just really get stuck in our scripts, I guess is what I'll what I'll mm-hmm. say. And uh we all, myself included, um uh you know, I'm less likely to read something that I think is gonna disagree with the way I already think about something. That's how we're wired. Um, sure. uh that's how you people with low blood, low blood pressure are wired. I read everything and just get enraged. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I've done my fair share of rage highlighting. Also, as you know, a parent <laughs> from the Purdue preschool gave me a highlighter that she had labeled rage highlighter uh, with a label maker. <laughs> That's kind of fun. And actually, as I'm trying to write now, I have this, like, I have so much rage highlighting karma out there. <laughs> I can't ever let someone read something I wrote now. Um, Anyway, one of the fun games I play with myself when I should be writing and I'm not. Um, But that's neither here nor there. And I don't remember where we were going when I started that. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about (laughs) self-initiated and the kind of people that we want to grow, Mm -hmm. grow to be and grow and, you know, support in their growth. I think it's all necessary, right? I think looking critically at our practice, looking critically at our writing that we're putting out into the world that, you know, hundreds of millions of people will read. And once it's a New York Times bestseller, you've got to be really confident (laughs) that your book is going to be the right thing for children and not another way to stress parents out. Yeah, that's (laughs) not one of my goals. (laughs) The New York Times, anyway. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah. So I don't, yeah, I guess we can end it with saying we don't know what the solution is other than we have to challenge ourselves, um, think critically about the narratives that are out there. When we, when we get, like when I get that button pushed about the word daycare, what does that mean about, you know, what do I need to dig deeper about with my own knowledge and beliefs and. Right. And also once we've done the work with ourselves, we can have those conversations with other people about yeah. their ideas of quality and their ideas of care and early education and their vision long-term rather yeah. than what can this child do when they leave preschool and start kindergarten. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't know how, I have no idea how long we've been recording, but we also talked before we hit record about, uh, you know, just briefly in passing, we were going to talk about it. We just mentioned Biden's uh, build back better plan oh, yeah. that didn't really get us where we hoped it would get us. And, um, but even there we saw, I think it was the closest thing we've gotten in a long time to seeing a workable kind of, kind of plan. But even that plan was um, the value was on the institutions that look more like school. Um, those and kinds just the of word settings. education and, and the, the word very education. narrow definition of education that we've all carried. Yeah. Yeah. Our memories start in that very formalized academic education. Right. Right. And, you know, um, uh, I remember a couple of times that the president would be talking about it and he'd say school, not daycare. And I was like, someone on his team needs to get to him. Someone needs to talk about the difference that he thinks he sees there and um, why he feels like he needs to emphasize that so much. Um, And why there's this idea that people, regardless of age, can only learn what's pushed down their throats and not what they're interested in. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a weird, I don't know. It's a weird, it's just weird to me when I think about how much easier all of our jobs would be if we spent less time trying to stop children from doing the things that are natural for children um, or how we think we need to teach curiosity when all the things around us that sort of bug us about young children are because of their, you know, they are curious. The curiosity is already right. there. We just want to corral it into an appropriate thing to be curious about. Um, be curious about bugs now. It's April. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, it's it's August. I hope you're all ready to be curious about each other because here comes the right. all about me and all my friends uh, themes. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Okay. We probably should, should wrap it, wrap it up. I feel myself just sort of spiraling to top from topic to topic and not, not really, uh, doing an interesting podcast. <laughs> probably have a, a final conclusion of thinking is good. Thinking is good. That's where Allowing we'll end it. To think is even better. Even better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You should think they should think. It should just be sometimes you'll have thoughts that are wrong and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. And go watch Bluey. Um, (laughs) Maybe I can get Bluey to sponsor the show. Anyway, thank you, Liz. This was fun. Finally to sit down and, uh, and record after we'd talked about and planned and even started one that we had to finish (laughs) early. Yeah. Um, And thanks everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on.
has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.